Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you very much. So, I'm going to start with a section of the book that um, is not relating to the larger narrative. There's a segment where the protagonist, Lucy is his name, uh, needs to catch a train. Can you hear me all right? Can you see me? (laughs) Where he needs to catch a train, uh, it's imperative that the train is on time and that he makes the train and leaves. He doesn't catch the train on time because the train is late. He never finds out why. But in the book, We the Reader, we do find out why. This section is called Irik and Alexander. The assistant train engineer named Irik was entertaining disappointment in the tavern after hearing news that his junior colleague Alexander would be made full engineer, an insult considering Irik's seniority and years of loyal service to the company. He had had nine plum brandies when Alexander entered the tavern, nodding his small greetings all around but making no announcement of his advancement, which somehow was worse than if he had, for it was plain just to look at him that he was distending with pride. He took a seat beside Eirik and laid a palm on his back. Eirik felt a measure of pity in that hand, and he rolled his shoulder to remove its weight. Alexander volunteered to buy Eirik a drink, but he declined. Thank you all the same, he said, but I'm not quite destitute yet. I wish you wouldn't take it that way, said Alexander. Wishing is a pastime for disappointment. Nothing more, Eric replied. Take it from one who knows. Now Alexander became serious, and he spoke with an edge to his voice Eric had not heard before. Look now, he said. We've got to work together. Tomorrow morning and every morning after. You and I have always got along well enough. I do hope there won't be any problems between us now. Eirik found himself regarding the ringed baby flesh of the man's neck, imagining what it would feel like to grip it in his hands. And in that same unsettling way, one realizes he's left the home to his, the door to his home ajar. Eirik knew that he could kill Alexander. Not that he would, but that it was possible. There won't be any problems coming from me, Eirik said, and he excused himself bowing exaggeratedly before weaving from the tavern and into the road. He went home for his supper but found no solace there, his foul mood compounded by his wife's miserly cheese portion. His wife was always miserly with her cheese portions, but the amount he received that night was even more scant than usual. He sat at the table alone, staring at his empty plate and considering his private theory, which was that his wife secretly ate the cheese herself while he was at work. More cheese, he called. Her voice from the larder was unemotional. There is none left. How in the world did we eat through an entire wheel in less than half a month, he asked. What can I tell you, she said. You eat it, and then it's gone. But I don't eat it. That's just the problem, he said. He moved to the kitchen and found her stacking plates, her back to him. You eat it. 
She stiffened and turned to look at her husband, loathing everything about him. His weak chin, his sour odor, his lopsided mustache, his stoop. The thing was, she really did secretly eat the cheese. No sooner would Eric leave for work than she would go for the hidden wheel and tug away a goodly-sized piece, savoring this in a corner nook otherwise unused, save for this lone and lonely activity. She was unsatisfied in most every aspect of her life, and the cheese was one of the very few pleasures she had. Now it appeared that this, too, would be stolen from her. All right, then, she thought. Take it all, even my smallest happiness. Reaching her arm deep into the cupboard, she removed the hoarded cheese and laid it on the counter before making for the privacy of the attic, where she wept in the full-throated style, feeling just as sorry for herself as a person could ever hope to feel. Eric stood a while, swaying and listening to his wife's jerky, breathy sobbings. He knew he should move to comfort her, but found the desire to do so entirely absent, being far too excited about this unexpected surplus of Gouda. I'll pay her a visit after a snack, perhaps, he thought, and brought the cheese to the dining room table, consuming the entire half-wheel in addition to a bottle of elderberry wine, afterwards passing out in his chair and suffering through a cycle of horrific dreams and visions. Alexander furiously copulating with his wife while eating his, Irick's cheese. His wife lying on the table nude while Alexander carved elegant swaths into her broad white calf with a paring knife, for she herself was fashioned from cheese. That his penis was cheese, which broke off while he urinated. That his penis was cheese, which his wife nibbled on while he slept. All through the night like this, and so in the morning, in addition to the state of his head from the wine and plum brandy, his sense of peace was compromised as he set out for work. He arrived at the station ten minutes late with bloodshot eyes and a halo of fumes swarming his head. Alexander recognized the man's impairment and felt a professional impulse to chastise him. So you kept it up last night, he asked. I did what I had to do. And now? Now I will do the same. An uneasy beginning, then. They spoke little as the hours went by. Eric's pain and insult were stubbornly insistent, but he knew he would get through that day and that the next day would not be quite so bad. In passing time, he thought of the loveliness of a glass of brandy, the first glass after a shift, the way it drew down his throat and coated his insides with flammable heat, afterwards leaving an aroma of smoked plums smoldering in his nostrils and mouth when he exhaled. It was very invigorating, that first plum brandy, and he began to look forward to it with earnest and uncomplicated appreciation. His anger diminishing, he decided he would buy his wife a wheel of cheese on the way home from the tavern and that he would encourage her to eat just as much as she wanted in plain sight, so long as he could have his fair share as well. And when this ran out, so what if they had to buy another? Perhaps he wasn't a full engineer, but he earned a good wage and there was room for occasional extravagances so long as they weren't too dear. Eric hit his stride with his coal spade and the flames shimmied and spit in the firebox. Sweat ran off his nose and chin and into his eyes, and this was agreeable to him. Life was not such a trial, after all, he mused. It wasn't easy, but then how dull an experience it would be if it were so. He began to whistle, and this meant that he was happy. Alexander sensed the change in his partner's mood and felt calmer for it. 
Allowing his mind to drift, he fell to thinking of the difficulties of his youth. His mother dead mere months after his birth. His father, waylaid from sorrow, vanished one autumn morning, never to return, never sending word. From the start, Alexander was instilled with the knowledge that whatever shape his life took, it was up to him alone to sculpt it. And so, to have risen to the level of engineer, he couldn't help but feel proud of himself. Surely this is understandable. But half an hour shy of the town called Barry, he made the mistake of verbalizing his satisfaction. My maiden voyage is engineer, he said. I can't deny it, but it feels good. He turned to Irik, who said nothing, but looked stonily ahead. Alexander said, Won't you allow me a moment of boasting, old friend? Boast away, Irik said. I won't stop you. Why can't you be happy for me? Who's to say I'm not? But how would I know if you were? Irik jammed the spade in the coal tender. What do you want me to do, he asked. Alexander became sheepish. Typically, when a man has a turn of good luck, his fellows will offer their congratulations. At this last word, Irik's black mood returned, a poison which leached through to the deepest parts of his soul. Alexander's neck looked velvety soft to the touch, and Irik's fingers began to twitch and grip. He resumed his feverish shoveling, and as the train barreled along the rails, he waited for his hatred to ebb, but it never did. And in fact, it only doubled and redoubled so that he felt lost to it. Resignedly, he waited for the best moment to exercise this feeling. The train eased into the station at Barry. Alexander peered out, an attitude of calm defining his person. He turned to Irik, meaning to offer some minor encouragement or compliment when he saw that his co-worker was watching him with a fanatical look, his eyes dreadful grotesquely transformed. The look made Alexander wary, and he asked, What's the matter? You want me to congratulate you, Irik asked. Don't you feel it's in order? Indeed it is, but you're certain you want me to. What manner of test was this? Would Irik strike him with a fist? Well then, better to have it out. Alexander was a healthy man, if portly, and had seen his share of tavern battles. He was not afraid of the stingy wretch who stood before him. Resting his hand on the brake lever and gripping it in his fist, he struck an upright and confident pose and said, I'm certain, Irik. Let's have it. The spade stuck out at an angle from the coal tender. Later, speaking to his cellmate, Irik would muse that it was as if the spade were leaning towards him, offering itself for assistance. He swung it in a quick, tight circle, bringing the edge down on Alexander's hand, severing cleanly the man's foremost three fingers, while the fourth hung as if on a hinge. This swayed up and back, and Alexander stood there watching the blood drain from the stumps with the look of a man who had just witnessed a baffling illusion. Congratulations, Eric said. He collected the fingers with the spade, and he tossed them into the churning firebox. Thanks. Thank you. Um, The next section I'm going to read is just the beginning of the book, so I don't think there's anything I have to tell you. Um, Lucy the Liar is the 
name of this section. Lucian Minor's mother had not wept, had not come close to weeping at their parting. All that day he'd felt a catch in his throat, and his every movement was achieved in degrees, as though swift activity would cause a breach of emotion. They had eaten breakfast together and lunch, but neither had spoken a word, and now it was time for him to go, but he couldn't step away from his bed, upon which he laid fully dressed in coat and boots, sheepskin cap pulled low to his brow. Lucy was 17 years old, and this had been his room since birth. All that he could see and put his hand to was permeated with the bewildering memories of childhood. When he heard his mother asking unknowable questions to herself from the scullery downstairs, he was nearly overcome with sorrow. A valise stood alertly on the floor beside him. Hefting himself from the mattress, he rose, stomping his feet three times, stomp, stomp, stomp. Gripping the valise by its swiveled leather handle, he walked downstairs and out the door, calling to his mother from the base of the steps before their homely cottage. She appeared in the doorway, lumpily squinting and clapping flower dust from her knuckles and palms. Is it time, she asked. When he nodded, she said, Well, come here then. He climbed the five groaning stairs to meet her. She kissed his cheek before peering out over the meadow, scrutinizing the bank of storm clouds roiling up behind the mountain range which walled in their village. When she looked back at him, her expression was blank. Good luck, Lucy, she said. I hope you do right by this, Baron. Will you let me know how it turns out for you? I will. All right, goodbye. She re-entered the cottage, her eyes fixed to the ground as she closed the door, a blue door. Lucy could recall the day his father had painted it ten years earlier. He'd been sitting in the shade of the anemic plum tree, marking the inscrutable industries of an anthill, when his father had called to him, pointing with a paintbrush, its bristles formed to a horn. A blue door for a blue boy. Thinking of this, and then hearing his mother singing an airy tune from within the cottage, Lucy experienced a dipping melancholy. He dissected the purposelessness of this feeling, for it was true he had never been particularly close with his parents, or rather, they had never cared for him in the way he had wished them to, and so they'd never had an opportunity to achieve any stable partnership. He was mourning the fact that there was nothing much to mourn at all, he decided. He elected to linger, a favored pastime, sitting upon his upended valise, legs intertwined fashionably. He removed his new pipe from his coat pocket, handling it with care, much in the way one holds a chick. He had purchased the pipe only the day prior. Having never used one before, he took a particular interest as he filled it with a chocolate and chestnut-smelling tobacco. He lit a match, and he puffed, puffed. His head was enshrouded in fragrant smoke, and he felt very dramatic and wished someone was watching him to witness and perhaps comment on this. Lucy was spindly and pale, bordering on sickly, and yet there was something pretty about him, too. His mouth was full, his black lashes long, his eyes large and blue. Privately, he considered himself comely in an obscure but undeniable way. He adopted the carriage of one sitting in fathomless reflection, though there was in fact no motion in his mind whatsoever. Holding the pipe head in the basin of his palm, he rotated the mouthpiece outward so that it rested between his middle and ring fingers. Now he pointed with it, here and there, 
For this is what the pipe-smoking men in the tavern did when giving directions or recalling a location-specific incident. A large part of the pipe's appeal to Lucy was the way it became an extension of the body of the user or functional appendage of his person. Lucy was looking forward to pointing with his pipe in a social setting. All he needed was an audience for whom to point as well as something to point at. He took another draw, but being a fledgling, he became dizzy and tingly. Tapping the pipe against the heel of his palm, the furry clump clumped to the ground like a charred field mouse, and he watched the blurred tendrils of smoke bleeding out through the shredded tobacco. Staring up at the cottage, Lucy cataloged his life there. It had been lonely largely, though not particularly unhappy. Six months earlier, he had fallen ill with pneumonia and nearly died in his bedroom. He thought of the kindly face of the village priest, Father Raymond, reading him his last rites. Lucy's father, a man without God, came home from working the fields to find the priest in his home. He led the man out by his arm. This accomplished in a business-like fashion, the way one shepherds a cat from the room. Father Raymond was startled to find himself treated in such a way. He watched Lucy's father's hand on his bicep, scarcely believing it. But your son is dying, Father Raymond said. Lucy heard this clearly. And what has that to do with you? I trust you can see yourself out now. Be a good chap and shut the door when you go. Lucy listened to the priest's hesitant, shuffling steps. After the latch caught, his father called out, Who let him in? I didn't see the harm, his father called back. Yes, but who summoned him? I don't know who, dear. He just came around. He sniffed out the carrion like a vulture, said Lucy's father, and he laughed. In the night, alone in his room, Lucy became acquainted with the sensations of death. Much in the way one shudders in and out of sleep, he could feel his spirit slipping between the two worlds, and this was terrifying, but also lovely in some tickling way. The clock tower struck two when a man appeared. This clock tower struck two when a man Lucy had never met entered the room. He was wearing a shapeless sack of what looked to be burlap. His beard was trimmed and neat, brown to black in coloring. His longish hair was parted at the temple as though it had just been set with brush and water. His feet were bare and sported caked ancient dirt running upwards to the shimbone. He padded past Lucy's bed to sit in the rocking chair in the corner. Lucy tracked him through gummy, slitted eyes. He was not afraid of the stranger particularly, but then he wasn't put at ease by his presence either. After a time, the man said, Hello, Lucien. Hello, sir, Lucy croaked. How are you? I am dying. The man raised a finger. That's not for you to say. Now he fell silent and rocked a while. He looked to be happy to be rocking, as though he'd never done it before and found it fulfilling. But then, as one troubled by a thought or recollection, his rocking ceased and his face became somber, and he asked, What is it that you want from your life, Lucy? Not to die. Beyond that, if you were to live, what would you hope might come to pass? Lucy's thoughts were slothful, and the man's query was a restless puzzle to him. And yet an answer arrived and spilled from his mouth as though he had no control over the sentiment. Something to happen, he said. The man in burlap found this interesting. Are you not satisfied, he asked. I am bored, said Lucy. 
and he began to cry a little after he said this, for it seemed to him a pathetic statement indeed, and he was ashamed of himself, of his paltry life. But he was too weak to cry for long, and when his tears dried up, he stared at the candlelight and shadows stuttering and lapping against the pale white seam where the wall met the ceiling. His soul was coming loosed when the man crossed over, knelt at the bedside, put his mouth to Lucy's ear, and inhaled. As he did this, Lucy felt all the heat and discomfort leaving his body. The man exited, holding his breath, and walked down the hall to Lucy's parents' room. A moment later, Lucy's father suffered a coughing fit. By dawn, the color had returned to Lucy's face, whereas his father's was paler, his eyes rimmed red where the lids sprouted lash. At dusk, his father was bedridden while Lucy took heedful steps around the room. When the sun rose the next morning, Lucy felt perfectly well other than a tenderness in his joints and muscles, and his father was dead in his bed. His mouth a gory sneer, hands stiffened to claws. The undertakers came to remove the corpse, and one of them slipped going down the steps, knocking Lucy's father's head against the, tr- the corner of the tread. The violence of the blow was such that it punched a triangulated divot in the skull at the forehead, and yet the wound did not bleed, an oddity which the undertakers discussed and commented on in Lucy's presence. Lucy followed the trio out the door and watched as his frozen father was loaded into an unclean cart. The cart departed and the corpse rocked to and fro as if under its own impulse. A spinning wind swooped under Lucy's nightshirt and the frost from the earth breathed coolly up his ankles. Dancing back and forth on the balls of his feet, he waited for a feeling of remorse or reverence which did not arrive, not on that day or any other day either. In the months that followed, Lucy's mother's attitude towards him soured further. Eventually she admitted that Though she knew Lucy was not explicitly at fault, she felt him partway responsible for his father's death as he had unwittingly transferred his illness to an otherwise healthy man and so had struck him down before his time. Lucy wanted to speak to his mother of the visitor in the burlap sack, but he had the sense that this was something he must not discuss, at least not with her. The episode proved a nagging burden, however, and at night he found himself starting in his bed every time the house settled. When he could no longer bear this feeling... He sought out Father Raymond. Lucy had no strong opinion of the church. I don't know Adam from Adam, he was fond of saying. One of many self-authored quips he felt deserved a superior audience to the lard-armed women who loitered about the fountain in the square. But there was something in Father Raymond he had responded to, a sincerity, an unpolluted empathy. Father Raymond was a moral and humane man, He followed the word of God to the letter, and at night, alone in his chambers, he felt the Holy Spirit coursing through his body like bird flocks. He was relieved to see Lucy in good health. In fact, he was relieved to see anyone. The village was largely non-religious, and he passed full days without so much as a knock on the door. He ushered his visitor into the sitting room, setting out a tray of ancient cookies which crumbled to sand before Lucy could deliver them to his mouth. A pot of pale tea offered no palatable diversion, and at last he gave up on the idea of refreshment altogether to tell the story of the stranger's visit. At the conclusion of the tale, Lucy asked who the man was, and Father Raymond made an overtaxed expression. How would I know, he asked. I was wondering if it wasn't God, said Lucy. Father Raymond looked doubtful. 
God doesn't travel through the night volleying disease, he said. Death, then, said Lucy. Perhaps, Father Raymond scratched his nose, or perhaps he was a marauder. Is anything missing from the house that you noticed? Only my father, said Lucy. Hmm, said the priest. He picked up a cookie which perished. He brushed the crumbs from his hands. The man will come again, I think, said Lucy. He told you this? No, but I feel it. Well, there you are. Next time you see the fellow, you be sure and ask him his name. In this manner, Father Raymond did little to put Lucy's mind at ease regarding the stranger in the burlap sack, and yet he proved to be of assistance in another unexpected way. When Lucy admitted to having no plans for his future, the priest took the trouble to write letters of introduction to every castle within a hundred kilometers, the idea being that Lucy might excel as some manner of servant. These letters went unanswered save for one penned by a man named Myron Olderglow, the major domo of one Baron von Aw's estate in the remote wilderness of the Eastern Mountain Range. Mr. Olderglow had been won over by Father Raymond's romantic description of Lucy as a, quote, unmoored soul in search of nestled safe harbor. It was rumored that Father Raymond spent his friendless nights reading adventure novels, which colored his dreams and waking life as well. Whether this was true or not is unknown. That the priest was partial to poetic turns of phrase is inarguable. An offer of employment in terms of payment rounded out the missive. The position, Mr. Olderglow assigned it the name of Under Major Domo, which Lucy and Father Raymond decided was not a word at all, was lowly and the pay mirrored this, but Lucy, having nothing better to do and nowhere in the world to be, and feeling vulnerable at the thought of the man in Burlap's return, embraced his fate and wrote back to Mr. Olderglow, formally accepting the offer, a decision which led to many things, including but not limited to true love, bitterest heartbreak, bright white terror of the spirit, and an acute homicidal impulse. (laughs) 